Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of our podcast. Thanks for tuning in and I hope everyone is staying safe and healthy out there amongst this crisis and taking some time to not only look after yourselves but also looking after others. Today's podcast is with an incredible person who I admire greatly. His name is Peter Bellion. By the very nature of their roles, emergency service first responders are routinely exposed to critical incidents and traumatic events. Collectively, these experiences can take a significant toll, placing first responders at high risk of developing mental health issues. From 1986 to 2016, Peter Bellion worked with Victoria Police, spending 26 years with the Major Collision Investigation Unit, where he attended over 2,000 road fatalities and 20 police deaths. In 2007, after the Kerrang Rail disaster, where 11 people were killed in a truck and train collision, he was diagnosed with PTSD, and after having three months leave, he returned and eventually worked back into frontline policing and crash investigation. After another nine years, Peter's PTSD had progressed to the chronic stage and he was also diagnosed with major depressive disorder, where 20% of his skin was covered with psoriasis and he had 35% psychological trauma injury to the brain. Peter was awarded the Australian Police Medal, National Service Medal, National Police Service Medal, Victoria Police Medal and Victoria Police Star for his service. Join me this week's, in this week's episode as Peter and I discuss his valuable life experiences in the frontline emergency services, his serious injury and treatment, and how he has moved on in life. All right, welcome Peter Billion today uh, to our podcast. Peter, thanks very much for coming in and joining me. Thanks, Sam. Uh, thanks for having me, and uh, uh, thanks for the invite to uh, ask me to speak about mental health and PTSD. But this this is a subject that uh, is, I, I guess, currently you know getting more and more attention. Um, do you feel, uh, as a part of previous, you know, I mean, with your 30 years experience in the police force, how do you feel PTSD and the conversations around that are going? Uh, it's, it's certainly, uh, there's a lot more awareness now, you know, like when I first went through the academy, um, you know, we did a couple of things like uh, breathing control techniques, progressive muscle relaxation techniques. We didn't really know what it was for, you know, it was just, an, I can remember doing the exercise. Uh, you know, first 20 years of my career, there weren't really any signs of what I know as PTSD, but then the last 10 years, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was sort of waking up in the middle of the night with everything going, you know, I'd go for 30k bike rides, uh, 10k runs, pump a heap of weights and then going to work at 7am and, you know, lost a lot of weight and got really, really fit on it. Um, not knowing why you're actually doing that. Um, but then, then you know, eventually uh, it, uh, 
you know, things progressing in you, start getting the emotional side of things. Um, you know, you start getting uh, a lot of more physiological reactions in your body, like as a result of more serious injury, you know, I ended up with over 35% um, injury to the brain and 20% of my skin covered with psoriasis, which is directly related to, um, and, you know, attending 2,000 road fatalities or up and 20 police deaths. Um, since uh, Graham Ashton has been Chief Commissioner of Victoria, he certainly, you know, it's brought it more to the forefront in Victoria. Um, you know, the origins of that condition go back for quite a long time. It goes back to the US Civil War, where uh, it was first called Soldier's Racy Heart. In World War One. it was called Shell Shock, World War II Combat Fatigue. Um, in 1988, after the Vietnam veterans, you know, were coming back, um, the diagnosis of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder came from the psychological community. But it's there's a lot of long-term effects of it. There's things like Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease and, and, and bowel cancer that, um, you know, are things that, that mm. kill people. Um, mm. You know, I can talk through my colleagues that I worked with at Accident Investigation, Major Collision. One died from alcohol poisoning, drunk himself stupid, drunk himself to death. Another guy died at, uh, he was a year older than me, I'm 54 now, he, he died five years ago from bowel cancer. Um, another guy, 58 years of age, you know, had a massive heart attack in his sleep about six weeks ago. So these, these are all phys long-term physiological effects of post-traumatic stress disorder and the type of work that your frontline military or frontline first responders do, because in the end of the day, we're not really designed to go to those things. The drill instructors actually yell commands at you and get you to work through that fear flight initially, but then as you go to more and more events over your career, um, your risk assessment continues to get higher. So then your body needs more and more adrenaline and cortisol released into it to continue to respond. And then what happens is you end up getting that when you don't need it, when your memory kicks into seeing different things or hearing different things or smelling different things that all trigger that um, same adrenaline cortisol release you got at the time that you went to the job and then you've got to learn how to manage that to move on. It, uh, it's such an important part, I guess, that we're still learning about uh, today, as you said. I mean, these things, long-term effects, especially sort of yeah. um, more and more of these studies and unfortunately people experiencing things further down the track. Mm. You are someone that is, in, in the front line, I mean, the service that you've provided, uh, almost 30 years pretty much yeah. in the uniform. Uh, someone who's been in the front line, as you said, uh, for emergency services, you've seen over 2,000 road fatalities, 20 police deaths. Uh, and I mean, it's. do you feel like you can ever prepare people for this, for that job? Um, the reality is, in the end of the day, you know, if pe if um, people have been working in these frontline roles, um, in, the, in the end of the day, if they've actually been doing the job they're required to do and not taking a backward step and letting somebody else do it, inevitably, um, they will end up either with PTSD or, or chronic PTSD. You know, at, at the Austin Repat Hospital, where I did the 10-week post-trauma recovery course in, in Melbourne back in uh, 2015, um, one of the first things they said to us was that, uh, you know, 30% of military 
and first responders end up with PTSD. So that's over a third of the mm. military and first responders workforce. Um, the other two thirds that don't get it, you know, I, I know there's certain people that I worked with that didn't do a lot. You know, if there was something to come up, they would get me to do it, you know, and I'd do it. Um, so it's not necessarily going to happen to everybody to those to, to everybody that puts a uniform on you know, because there will people there will be those people that aren't leaders or take the initiative and actually do things when they need to be done you know go into that mm -hmm. situation where we're not designed to go into um, others will take the backward step they're the ones that aren't going to to get it because they haven't had that full-on fight or flight experience yeah where did the drive for you to want to become in the emergency services? Where did that did that come since you were a kid? Or uh, yeah, so well, where it where it came from? Um, there's a lot long military history in the in the family. You know, like uh, my namesake, you know, Peter Bain went back to the 13th Light Dragoons in the Crimean War in 1854. You know, wow. riding through the valley, guns on the left, guns on the right, guns at the end, sort of thing. Uh, yeah, and then. It was a survivor of that, and then uh, my granddad. Uh, even though I didn't get to meet him, he, he passed away in 1952. But he was in the Somme in World War One. Um, you know, got uh, he died from uh, ulcers from the effects of the gassing from when they were in the trenches and that. Um, the great grandfather was was killed on the Somme. Uh, I had a great uncle that was killed on the second day of the battle at Lone Pine at uh, Gallipoli in the August of 1915, um, and then my cousin. Um, Mum's um, brother, his oldest boy, Gordon John, who passed away last year. He was a Vietnam veteran. He was on HMAS Sydney the third, or the Bung Tower ferry that transported all the Royal Australian Regiment troops and the helicopters and trucks back and forward, uh, you know, from Melbourne or Sydney through to um, uh, Bung Tower in Vietnam. So wow. he he had a long term, you know, drinking and smoking history and uh, yeah. he, he passed away uh, just over 12 months ago. So so I've got, you know, the service medals from my granddad, service medals from my cousin. Um, I, I originally, uh, had, you know, as a kid, you know, built a lot of models, model aircraft, model tanks, model ships and, and all that. There was something in me as a kid that sort of led to that uniform sort of presence. And yeah. uh, I was going to go into the Air Force after finishing year 12 and dad, said to me, why don't you go and do a civil engineering degree or an engineering degree? And um, yeah, I probably realised why he now did that because he would have seen when he was younger the effects of his dad coming back from the Somme. No doubt about it now. From, yeah. and, and Dad was really good with me when I was in the job and I was able to debrief um, a lot of stuff th through him. But when, um, when he passed away in, in 2014, I didn't have that avenue anymore and that's where you know i had to sort of seek um professional people that yeah. you know i could relate stuff that was going on and debrief various incidents that were coming up and triggering off physiological reactions in the bodies so that was was when i did the engineering degree that i um there was a police officer that spoke in third year traffic engineering about what the police do in terms of you know uh, road trauma reduction accident investigation and that developed interest and led to um, me in my final year doing investigation project reviewing speed limits on our roads and um, 
one of the recommendations I made was a mass introduction of speed cameras. And uh, in Victoria, that happened in 1990. And uh, what happened in from 1989 to 1990, we saw our road toll go from 770 deaths to 500. And then it continued to come down to 397 wow. in about 1997. And then it started to pick up again. At that stage, I was asked to um, do a presentation, statewide conference presentation. Um, about what had happened back then, talked about stopping sight distance from a road design point of view, from an engineering background. And the last slide I finished with was what would happen if we wiped off another five in terms of you know, speed tolerance and, and camera enforcement. And that's where the wipe off five advertising campaign came through uh, with the Transport Accident Commission in Victoria. Um, I'd been a technical advisor to them all the, all the time, um, but I was in the accident investigation, major collision investigation unit um, so, you know, not only was I attending road trauma, but I was trying desperately hard to reduce it because I think in the background that was my goal was to reduce road trauma mm. with engineering education enforcement initiatives. And I think one of the things in the end of the day, I'd actually couldn't come up with any more new ideas to continue bringing it down. And, uh, you know, so that goal or inspiration uh, gone and, and in the end, I'd, you know, your body was saying you've, you've actually been too, too much and all these things, all these reactions were occurring, um, which I now know is, well, initially PTSD and then chronic PTSD, um, which led to me, you know, retiring because once it goes to chronic format, it actually affects your work performance, you know, like if you go to, uh, I remember going to firearms training towards the end and you couldn't hold the gun straight and you'd start to miss a few shots, you'd have to recoil, um, you know, turn the lights and sirens on, going to a job, you're breaking out massive sweats, getting pains in your chest, giving evidence in trials, getting pains in your chest. One time I actually went from trials straight to the emergency department thinking I was having a heart attack. Um, another time the symptoms presented as me having a stroke and uh, had an emergency trip in an ambulance to um, St Vincent's Hospital one night. Um, body was shaking completely violently, the whole body experience in the ambulance on the way there. And uh, so much so that they had to hit me with morphine when I got in there just to calm everything mm. down. But it was it was basically just put down to a massive anxiety response from the PTSD. Yeah. So, uh, so 86, you were, you went through the academy for the police yep. after your engineering degree. Yeah. You then uh, initiated um, early on uh, the introduction of speed cameras. Um, during this time, you were attending road fatalities. Yeah. What, uh, I guess there's a period there for about 20 years until you had the first episode. Is yeah. That, is that correct after? Yeah, so it was probably about, uh, it was around about 2005 that um, in uh, in the April of that year, so there was the 20, uh, 24th of April 2005 where uh, a police officer by name Tony Clark um, had, uh, pulled over a car on the Warburton Highway down in, in Victoria. And um, uh, Tony had approached the driver. The driver was mentally disturbed. As it turns out, there was a, um, the driver got out of the car. There was a, uh, a struggle. The guy grabbed for Tony's firearm. Um, you could tell there was a struggle because the holster ended up damaged and bits and pieces on the road. And uh, the uh, person from out of the car managed to grab Tony's firearm, shot and killed him and then this guy went up the road and killed himself. Um, so our, our unit was deployed to attend the scene. Um, I'm then two days later sitting in the office processing the crime scene plan for Tony's death. 
and at about eight thirty in the morning, get called to another police officer's death, uh, Rennie Page on the Hume Freeway at um, up at Winton near Benalla, about two hundred k's from Melbourne, um, where uh, basically Rennie had a car pulled over for speeding. They were in the emergency lane. Um, another driver who'd left Melbourne at six thirty in the morning, two hours into a trip, but has basically had a micro sleep, drifted left in the emergency lane as Rennie was returning back from handing the ticket to uh, the driver in the car they'd pulled over back towards the patrol car and this other car hit him as a pedestrian and basically had a, in a 110k zone, uh, tore his leg off and, and killed him. Um, so I go up there that day and uh, I actually, in terms of running his body recovery, um, took his equipment belt off, um, pulled the gun out, made the firearm safe, um, you know, picked up his leg, picked up his body, Help the undertakers put him on the body bag and zip him up, and uh, yeah, that's fucked. Yeah. yeah, and so that's that's where. So that's when the, that was, that's when when the first uh, real problems with sleeping yeah. started out uh, overnight, um, and you know it was around about that time that I started really you know waking three four in the morning, um, not being able to stay asleep. So I was just doing all this intense training um yeah and you know you're basically just not realizing that you've got all this adrenaline and you're trying to get rid of it yeah. and i was doing it through training through running cycling weight training yeah very intense stuff so the signs that you're picking up after those incidents uh, and keep in mind the previous 18 19 years you'd yeah. still been attending yeah, so there's accumulation as you go through. Yeah, yes. there's, accumu- there's definitely a cumulative effect. Um, you know, some some people um, will have different levels of resilience. Obviously, you know, to, to go to that extent that by that stage, you know, there'd probably been over a thousand fatalities that I'd been to in total. And, um, you know, it, it took that long for to hit me, but mm. I know of other colleagues that it can only be one or two incidents that, been life-threatening that can actually trigger symptoms for the for for long term. You know, yeah. it just it really comes down to the individual's makeup too, yeah. as to how much one person can take and yeah, whether it, 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 there's no real no real science to it. No. So so then you're experiencing symptoms of of uh, broken sleep, yep. unable to to stay asleep a certain amount of time. You were then over. Were you comp- trying to compensate for that with physical workouts? Yeah. To release. Yes. Yeah, uh, a definitely. Lot of the adrenaline yeah. Yeah. And, the, yeah. and the tension. Yeah. What, what else? What other? What were the other signs that led to you then wanting to seek help? Or. Uh, so so it was after um, after Rennie Page's death that um, I actually con- first contacted our clinical support unit with Victoria Police. And basically went in and went through a full debrief of what had happened that day, um, what was happening afterwards. Um, and, you know, it was a couple, you know, a couple of counselling appointments, but, you know, I thought, oh, yeah, that's enough. I've, you know, I don't need to do any more of this. I'm, I'm all good to go again sort of thing. And, uh, this is what you thought? Yeah, this okay. is what I thought. So I, I kept uh, on along and then um, getting to... Yeah, 2006 and um, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, 2006. So one very significant job on the 18th of February, 06, which was up 
um, near Mildura where uh, 16 ages had been killed on the side of the road. Uh, guy driving a car with his daughter on his uh, lap. Uh, sorry, his young four-year-old son on his lap and his 10-year-old daughter in the front seat. Lost control of a car. A group of kids that had been at a party standing on the side of the road on the shoulder and uh, the guy lost control. So basically went off the road sideways and broadsided and cleaned them all up. Um, and uh, six of them were, were dead there, basically in a group on the side of the road. So we get you know, get called out there. I think it was 10.30 at night I got called on the Saturday night and, and uh, you know, it's an emergency, you know, lights and sirens in the car all the way to Mildura. Um, whilst I'm up there working amongst the six teenage kids, um, you know, our police helicopter was flying over with a couple of other colleagues from the office searching for the offender because they'd done a runner. Um, left his four-year-old daughter and ten-year-old, uh, four-year-old son and ten-year-old daughter at the scene, and uh, yeah, so that was continually going out back and forward looking for him while I'm working amongst the uh, six deceased. Um, so one one of my one of my triggers is is emergency service or police helicopters of a particular sound, you know, the, the sound of the dolphin or the Eurocopter is all very similar sound and uh, I'm very, very tuned into that sound, um, you know, because a lot of time overnight when I get got called out, I would actually hear that approaching towards the trauma centres at either Royal Melbourne Hospital or the Royal Children's Hospital because they come, they would basically come in over my place where I live at, at Yarraville and that, um, mm. that would then initiate and getting called out, so you're going from that deep sleep into that yeah. full on high alert mode, sort of thing. Um, yeah. So, so after you stopped the counselling, uh, and then you had an incident again, and then did that then trigger? Yeah. So, symptoms? so going back to um, Mildura, um, you know that we we're up there for a number of days, and um, there was some sort of pretty irrational behaviour by the guys. You know, debriefing that night, there was a fair bit of alcohol involved, and you know there was um, there was a a pool next to a restaurant, a place we were staying, and you know I remember, you know, guys were stripping off and jumping in the pool, and you know you look back on it and thought, well, what the hell would the people in the restaurant have been thinking? Yeah, you know? and basically it was just the guys just completely, you know, you, you, you relate that back to. Like you, there was one scene in the movie The Pacific that I, I saw, and you know, you see guys walking around in the nude in the Nordry barracks, and and sort of when I saw that, and I thought, you know, and then flash and remembered back to what had happened after that, and I thought, you look back on that behaviour, and that was totally irrational, you know, it was un, it was sort of, yeah, that that was a that was a sign back then yeah. that things obviously weren't quite right with not only myself but uh, but yeah. others that had been up there that night and and one of my one of the other sergeants that i went to that job with he's also ill health retired with uh chronic pdsd and and that that job in particular was one of his main ones that uh you know led to his ill health retirement yeah and so do you then uh started getting your symptoms again of um broken sleep after that or yeah well, that, look that had probably that still been continuing on through you know i'd continued that training regime and um in the middle of that year 06 uh my mum uh, had had a fall onto the washing machine she ended up with a lump under her breast that developed into breast cancer um so i was taking her to you know radiation appointments after she'd had her breast and lymph uh, glands or lymph nodes removed um, 
And then in the September of that year, there was a, a two-car crash on the Boring Hollow at Donald where um, seven people were incinerated and killed in one crash. So you know, that was another job that I had to do, do work on. Um, and then in the November, Mum passed away. Um, only had a week off after her funeral and then I was back into it again. Um, and the first fatality that I went to during that um, period that Christmas New Year period was just leading up to Christmas where a car had run off the road um, out St Albans Way. Uh, there was a bigger lady who was a passenger in the car. My, my mum was a bigger lady. Um, she had sometimes had difficulty getting the seatbelt around her. This lady didn't have the seatbelt worn properly. It was sort of under her arm. Uh, daughter had been driving, gone off the road and, and hit a tree and caused fairly low speed impact. But the fact is, because the seatbelt wasn't anymore, you know, she sort of slid, slid forward and, and died. And, you know, I remember working there that night and God, it looks like mum. And then, then an ambulance officer rocked up at the scene that turned out, uh, and he was short in stature and similar looking to my dad. And I'm like, well, what the fuck's going on here, sort of thing. And, yeah. uh, you know, was um, he he was the the husband of the lady that had been killed. So oh, he was actually an actual ambulance officer. And then I remember that, that particular night, uh, I don't think I slept at all. I basically cried, yeah. cried all night um, after that. And um, then, you know, had uh, after that Christmas New Year period, well, I can't really remember any other specific jobs at that time, but that was yeah. one that particularly stood out. And uh, then had two weeks leave. I used, you know, sort of last two weeks of January, and uh, the fam we, family and I went away with some friends up to Swan Hill. But I, I think it was two a.m. every morning. I was awake and uh, pumping out hundreds and hundreds of push-ups and sit-ups um, and not really resting. And then go back to work and then in the March, 23rd of March of 07, which was my younger daughter Tamara's birthday, um, she was uh, turning eight on that day. And uh, at 9.30 in the morning, we get a call to the Burnley Tunnel triple fatality down in Melbourne where, where three people were incinerated in separate vehicles that have been basically initiated by a truck driver that had been on his uh, or received a mobile phone call that set the whole thing off. Um, so, you know, th three massive incinerations of bodies. Um, I ended up later on in that day actually taking two phone calls from relatives um, that had contacted local police stations, you know, and basically had to speak to them and say, look, we can't confirm at this point of view but this is the vehicles evolved we know you know your yeah. uh, husband was driving we know your son was owner of that car you know we haven't formally identified but the reality is that that's that's yeah. them you know and it's uh that that's pretty you know like death notifications are really really hard to do and uh yeah you never you never forget you never forget um so that you know but i sort of kept pushing pushing through and uh and then we get to the 5th of june of 07 which was when the kerrang rail disaster so mm -hmm. i end up being um that was at 1 30 in the afternoon I, I basically just come back into the office from court i'm in the car everything i got everything there ready to go the boss says oh there's a job at uh kerrang at on the railway crossing up on the murray valley highway um i said well all right i'm I'm ready to go. I'll start heading up there and I'll do all the radio comms on the way up. Others flew. I actually got up there before our guys in the helicopter. So I'm, uh, I, I approach that scene and the, the very first thing I see is the red wigwag lights still flashing on the right hand side of the crossing. 
um, and you see the train that had been hit, you know, off to the right, and the truck that had hit the train off to the left and taking out signals, and uh, one body on the side of the road. But the second carriage involves basically two thirds of it's been ripped open, and uh, another nine of the eleven victims were in that carriage, and uh, there was two young primary school girls and a, and a, and a boy by the name of Matthew in there. Um, then there was an older lady in the back carriage. Um, so the old lady's still the connection with mum's death. Um, and then the two two primary school girls and the boy Matthew, um, similar ages and names to my three kids at that point mm. in time. So, you know, we, we worked on that job for the day and uh, at the, um, Later on that evening, a lot of dew, you know, moisture came down. It got too dangerous to work. So it was one of the first jobs where normally you'd go in, rehabilitate it all and move out. Um, but this was a job where we couldn't do that that particular night because it actually got too dangerous to work. And uh, we, the nearest spot we the crew could get in to stay was actually at Murray Downs up in Swan Hill. So, of course, what do we start doing? Everybody starts debriefing. You know, lots, lots of grog and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, I remember one of the boys' uh, rooms was just bottles everywhere, you know. Mm. Um, and then, you know, eventually you go to, go to bed and uh, then you wake up, you're still pretty stuffed in the morning. And But it was really interesting because the media had got on to who some of the victims were. So they're putting photos up of the victims, even though they haven't been formally identified at this stage. Mm. So I'm eating breakfast and you're seeing uh, these these victims, uh, and then you know, hang on, I've got to go back here, and we've got to process all this shit. So yeah. all of a sudden, each one, of, instead of being a coroner's number, had a, had an identity, and you knew their background. Mm. Uh, so it put a completely different slant on everything at that yeah. point in time. And I remember walking into the Korean uh, police station at the end of that second day, just feeling really, really emotionally flat, mm. completely flat and headed back to uh, Melbourne um, with one of, the, one of my other colleagues who's now passed away that went to that job, um, Jeff. Um, he only lasted 12 months after retiring. Um, it was riddled, riddled, absolutely riddled with, with cancer, you know, so worked all these years, retires, bang, gone in 12 months. Um, and we had a, a lady from our clinical support area, so we, you know, we did a bit of debriefing in the car on the way back. Um, but there was only really the two big or three jobs that had formal clinical debriefing uh, throughout the career. So one was Rennie Page that I talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, the other one was the Mildura job where the clinical sport actually came up when the six kids were killed and then they came up to the Korean Railroad us, but nothing else where they came to. Um, the, th the, the day after, the Thursday after the Korean crash, which was on the Tuesday, you know, I, I basically did probably 10, 12 hours in the office processing stuff. And um, Connie, who was our receptionist at work, and said, look, Connie, I need a day out. I'm not coming in today. So, you know, I had just play. I think I walked around the golf course for 36 holes that day. Played shit golf, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, it's a good distraction. Yeah, and, but then went back into work on the Monday, you know, and uh, went into five, had five trials. Um, and it was, uh, um, yeah, that they were pretty full on trials. You know, when you give me evidence in trials, it's you know in the witness box, you're right up there. Everybody's looking at you. You know, you get intense, intense concentration with questions and answers and all that all the time. And then it was a mid mid um, 
September that I, I basically you know, was out on a Thursday morning. I'd normally have a go and golf and then go and work on the afternoon shift and uh, was walking around the golf course just crying. And, you know, but went out of shower, put the uniform on, going to work, and then boss could see the you know the redness in the eyes and he said, "You're right." And I said, "No, not really." Yeah. <laughs> yeah so that was that. Then led to uh, having three months off. But yeah, come back to work and uh, on in that return to work, um, six out of the, the next seven shifts, I ended up giving evidence in three separate court cases. Uh, so four of the days was in the Supreme Court giving evidence in the trial for the guy that did hit and killed the kids up at Mildura. Yeah. So that was pretty full on. And, and during that during that trial, I was all right in the witness box, but in the breaks, I was experiencing like hyperventilating. I thought, where's this coming from? And so. Uh, at one stage, we rang, you know, a colleague rang clinical support, and I told him what was happening. Um, and then I ended up, uh, you know, they had an extended adjournment for a couple of hours, and I remember driving home to Yarraville, which wasn't far from town, and I hopped on the exercise bike, and for 20 minutes, I averaged 55 kilometres an hour. Like, that's nuts. When you, when you think about mm-hmm. it, you think, how the hell can you do that? If I tried to do that now, I'd have a heart attack. You yeah. know, that, that's how much adrenaline was pumping pumping through the system. So, um, yeah, so that, and then, so after that week, I ended up then uh, a former colleague that had moved into town with um, uh, Assistant Commissioner Ken Lay for Travi. Um, he said, look, we've got a role for you to do in here as a you know, senior sergeant sort of project work. So it got me off the front line for a little bit, um, although we were still seeing daily, you know, incident fact sheets about fatalities that had ca- happened overnight or the previous day, and and advising the assistant commissioner on on those, and also I still had my former colleagues um, that were subordinate to me that I was their supervisor. You know, they were still going to jobs and still sending, oh, what do you think about this, and sending mm-hmm. photos through by email for looking. So you was, even though you weren't off off the front line, there was still that. Yeah. level of exposure there um you know i set up crash car reality displays in fed square so that was you know still liaising with victims so there was still a lot of connection and and then i ended up setting up that highway patrol show with with uh channel seven um and greenstone pictures in the first half of a9 but in the lead up to that we had the black saturday fires yeah. down in victoria and um i was down in the media unit and basically assisted uh you know with up updating the daily death toll and taking a lot of inquiries out in regards to missing persons and, and then actually going up to the fire scenes. And then later on when I went eventually back to the unit halfway through that 2009, the first job I go back to is a quadruple fatal, but then also did a lot of post um, analysis on a lot of the car cars involved in the, in the fires on Black Saturday too, from mm. all the crime scene photos. So. Um, yeah, so there was a, a strong connection with that too. With the three months off, did you yeah. were you seeking help then? Was it just resting? Oh, was, you, yeah, it was most, mostly just resting, recuperating, and uh, there was a couple of counselling appointments I went to, and yeah, there was no at that point in time there was no um, uh, medication involved. Um, there is now. I, uh, I I take medication every day now, um, and if you don't, it uh, you know the, the cause cause the PTSD eventually went to the chronic PTSD. The medication controls the goalposts. It controls the depths of depression, and it controls the heights of anxiety. You know, it's like riding a massive wave. So 
in between those goalposts, once they're narrowed in, you can use natural um, things like EFT or tapping. Uh, you can use progressive muscle relaxation. You can use breathing control. I do a lot of Pilates and yoga specific stretches to um, basically open the front of the body, open the chest um, and, and release that tension. I uh, probably have two remedial, very full on remedial massage sessions each week because you get the shakes overnight at a certain time and you wake up and just in that startled response your body's basically doing a full body workout. So you don't have to go to the gym very often and doing tense workouts. So a lot of stuff I do now is low yeah. key. I don't do any cycling, you know, I went, helped, helped a mate get around the Melbourne Marathon the other weekend and they did the, he did the full marathon and I ran a fair bit of it with him. Um, yeah. But he was, you know, we, we it was five and a half hours. We yeah. weren't going hard and, yeah. but I hadn't done any training, but <laughs> you got that extra, adrenaline going in your system where you can do shit like that yeah, yeah. you know a lot of people couldn't do that no yeah. no way so. It's, it's, so so then you were back on the so you had three months off then you went back into the police force yeah uh, even though it's a, a different position there's still yeah. connections to what you yeah. were doing previously yeah for another nine years is that correct yeah so that well the it was uh yeah, 2008 and 2009 i was in that different role but then i came back to the unit um, okay. in, in my previous role um, and was doing a bit of upgrading at senior sergeant rank. Um, during that last half of 09, you know, the view was to try and get promoted to senior sergeant. Um, uh, I did some upgrading in charge of our heavy vehicle unit and our special solo unit. So they were sort of different roles. Heavy vehicle unit was truck enforcement. Um, special solos was like VIP escorts and um, also f escorts for bike cycle races and stuff like that. So that was something completely different, you know, and that was all right. Um, but, uh, you know, after um, putting in for a couple of senior sergeants positions and trying to basically go up to that next level where you're just purely more management yeah. rather than front line, but kept coming runner up. And I think, you know, what's the difference really here? Why and I sort of realised that it was because, because of my qualifications and my accident reconstruction specialty that really they, they probably didn't want me promoted. They really they wanted me to know. stay in that area. Um, and and halfway through 09, one of, one of the bosses you know said to me, he said, well, you can't stay in there forever. This was in it when I was working for Ken Lai. We need you back. Um, and then, you know, I come back and the first first uh, shift back at the unit was the, the quadruple fatality in, in Helm. So <laughs> welcome back. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I sort of, you know, basically then uh, I'm, I'm full time back at the unit through to all about, uh, so, so 2013 was a specific year. The Easter period was a very, um, I went to four deaths in four days. Uh, one was a 14 year old schoolgirl who was the same age as my younger daughter at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, that she was hit um, in Richmond, um, just around the corner from the school where we'd actually been with my daughter to see we, if we could get her to go there. Um, so it was that connection, and you know, so you see a fourteen-year-old schoolgirl there in uniform, dead on the road, and then just up the road is uh, all the relatives have rocked up and been taken into the the, um, the Commonwealth Bank there, um, and in that bank was also. Uh, another girl that was with the girl that was killed so you know i remember 
speaking to the girl to try and initially find out some information about what had happened, you know, because you needed to know that ASAP. And then, um, and then you got all the relatives, you know, squawking and squalling in the background. Um, and it's funny, that, that particular event, um, about two years later, one, one of my mates, uh, mate of my son had his 21st birthday just down the road. So I'm at this location down the road and I happened to walk back there, get to that intersection in Richmond without realising that, oh, all of a sudden you're here. And it um, basically had two meltdowns within five minutes, one at the intersection where the girl was, and then one when I got to the bank where all the relatives were. And that was, you know, that full on emotional sort of events and people were sort of going, what the hell's going on? Yeah. You're right, mate, sort of thing like that. And uh, yeah, so, um, and then also that weekend, uh, I went to uh, a police officer's death from Benalla Highway Patrol and that was, uh, he was on his bike hit by a bus or passenger coach. Um, and that was the fourth police member's death from the Benalla Police Station complex that I'd been to um, in my career. So mm. Rennie Page was from there, Simon DeWin, Alan Dickinson, um, and then uh, Brendan Lynch. So, yeah. So, so this, so you're back in the job, you, you, you're thinking that you, you are better, but you're still experiencing these breakdowns, you're still not sleeping well. Yeah. Adrenaline's still pumping yeah. randomly. Yeah. It, it, yeah. So one, one of the other things I noticed was after Kerrang, um, within days, um, you know, a big sort of rash come out on my right leg. Yeah. Um, and I went to the doctor about that. And uh, I said, you know, it was a female doctor I went to in, in Footscray. And, uh, and I said, look, I've got this on your leg. She had a look at it. And I, and I said, what's that? She says, oh, it's psoriasis. I said, what's that from? She says, she said it's from... Um, too much cortisol going through your body, which is a stress hormone. She goes, what do you do for a job? And I said, oh, I'm a police officer. She said, well, what, what area do you work in? I said, oh, I'm a major collision investigation unit. And uh, she uh, said, well, have you been to anything recently? And I said, well, I've just come back from a crash where 11 people were killed and she fell out of the chair, you know. <laughs> you know, they just don't. Something you hear about. No, every day, yeah. Um, so, I, you know, as a result of, uh, you know, I ended up, I've got 20% of my skin one-fifth of my total area in my skin covered with psoriasis, which is too much cortisol. So, and that's a real pain in the ass, literally. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it gets hot and itchy and scaly, and then yeah. it comes off, and then you've got, you know, you're leaving skin flakes all over the house and continually getting told off by the missus for scratching it and all this sort of stuff. And, and you never had this before? No, 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 no. It's all associated with it. And um, But that's one of the th reasons why I got in involved with loss. Well, I was involved with the Life Saving Club because my younger daughter had gone through the Nippers program. And um, so it was a, a fairly relaxing place. You know, there's not a lot that happens at a bay beach. Stuff does happen. You know, we've had people hit and killed by jet skis down there and had jet skis collide. And But most of the time we're doing preventative actions. But a lot of the time it's just keeping an eye out on the water, yeah. listening to the surf, yeah. plenty of sunlight, so natural serotonin, yeah. which is a ingredient of antidepressant medication. Plus, it's salt water, which is good for the psoriasis. So that's the reason why. why so you're volunteering that. down there. Volunteering, yeah. yeah. And so this is towards the back end of when you're uh, about to get out of. Yeah. So the, the, probably the, there was uh, the last, second last job I got, Road Vitelli, I got called out to was actually on my um, nephew's twenty first birthday party night. So I'd actually done a volunteer shift at the Life Saving Club that 
afternoon and towards the end of the afternoon get a call from the senior sergeant at the crash unit um we need you up at Wedderburn so Wedderburn's you know it's about a two and a half three hours from Melbourne so yeah so I basically ring my sister saying look uh sorry but I can't come to Chris's 21st um and it was funny because when he was born on the 3rd of January in uh, 93 and I got a call out to a fatality that night too so yeah, luckily I got to go to his wedding, so that was all right <laughs> this year. But um, yeah, it's just and you remember that, and that was a pretty uh, nasty three vehicle collision, and where one of the vehicles had gone high speed into a tree head on, and two killed in that. And then the the very last road fatality I went to was um, actually a former police officer who who had a history of epilepsy. He, um, the epilepsy management had been going all right. He'd applied to get his license back, got his license back, picked up his two primary school kids from um, school up in uh, north northeast Victoria around the Wodonga area, um, and basically um, exiting out of a, a right hand curve. You know, it's apparent that he's had a seizure, and the car's gone under acceleration, passenger side first into a tree. He survived, but the car was torn into three massive bits and. His two primary school uh, kids were just ripped apart, you know, completely destroyed young bodies on the side of the road. So that's, that was the very last road facility I went to. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of, a lot of memories there. Um, you know, there's stuff, unfortunately, you never forget, and it's always they're always in the hippocampus of the brain, and you know, it doesn't take much to trigger it. Yeah, because from a police, particularly from an investigation point of view, you would do very, very detailed statements about day, date, time, place, road conditions, weather conditions, vehicle descriptions, all this sort of stuff. And then you had the associated um, sight, smells, hearing at the time you're at the job. So all those form part of your memory. And then you know, with that chronic PTSD, it only takes you to see, hear or mm. something similar um, and it'll trigger you know, that physiological reaction in your body that you then got to use your management toolbox to yeah. bring it back down. And whether that be natural things or whether it be medication. So. Well, you went to, um, so at what point did you go to the Balmoral Centre, so the Austin? So to the Austin, that was, um, so after, so in... 2016, was it? Yeah, no, yeah, I went, I went there in uh, 15 and I, I ill health retired in 2016, so um, it was from February through to April in, in 2015. So that's a 10 week program, two days a week. Um, and the first things they say to you when you go, go there is that, okay, you've, you've got PTSD or chronic PTSD. Um, it's something that'll be with you for the rest of your life. Um, we'll teach you how and why it happened and we'll teach you how to manage it. Um, because you, you sort of go along with that thinking, oh, yeah, I, I can do this course and then you bounce back. But the reality is, yeah. no, nah, it's long term. Yeah. How did you find the course? Was it good? Yeah, it was very, very interesting and very, obviously, you know, I've learned a lot about it and, and obviously when I've educated a lot of other people about it. And, um, you know, it's also assisted me to support other veterans through um, some covert social media groups that we have. Um, you know, that are mostly Victorian police veterans, but there's also, you know, you see ambulance officers, fire brigade, and even people that, that are, some of the better people at the Life Saving Club, you know, that have been there for a long time, you know, you're able to provide valuable input or insight as to, you know, seeking appropriate uh, treatment for those those sort of conditions, so, yeah. 
So you went to that for a period of ten weeks, ten weeks, yeah, two ten. days a week, yeah. And then after that, you you then basically I was on uh, yeah just winding down to ill health retirement. Yeah. yeah, so I was on um, yeah had to go to a lot of uh, independent medical examinations and things like that, which yep. are, they're, they're pretty full on, you know, like uh, you, you know they send you to a different person each time, <laughs> and you got to go yeah. through the whole lot again and. Um, yeah, and each time you would do it back then, you'd you'd end up breaking down basically. Yeah. You know, like I I can sort of talk about it now without yeah. necessarily breaking down most of the time, um, and that's because you know I'm managing it with a medication and other techniques these days. So, so, so let's explore the other techniques that you use because yeah. uh, I know that there's different therapies out there, a yeah. lot more uh, innovative things that are coming out on the market. Yeah. Some research is becoming more yeah. um, more part of the evidence-based stuff to provide yeah. people with some other tools. What, yeah. what are you using? What have you found really effective? So I um, I paid my own way to go to London in um, 2017, October 2017, and uh, did a, a workshop on EFT, Emotional Freedom Techniques, or the Tapping Solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, got a book called uh, EFT for PTSD by Buchanan um, and I read that from cover to cover and learnt actually how to do the technique myself and then did some workshop sessions and and used that specifically on uh, probably some of the bigger jobs I went to. Um, I so that effective? Yeah, yeah, and I, I invariably you'll find, um, you know, from time to time I, I will just you'll do that without even thinking, you know. You, you've got the various Chinese meridian points on the body that yes. you tap on that actually interferes with the uh, electrical circuitry in the brain that's caused the amygdala, which is the thing that's fired up, um, that flight fight response. Yes. Um, so it, it has an effect on calming that when you do that. It's a five-step process that you, you do. Um, yeah, with the eight points on the body and the, and the repeating of the... Yeah, so, you know, your first first one is to uh, tap on the karate point. Yeah. On your, you know, like you're doing a karate chop, and, uh, you, you know, you, when you're tapping on that, you you would say something like, you know, even even though I'm experiencing this anxiety response at a level of eight out of ten, I deeply yep. and completely accept myself, you yes. know, and you go through that three times. And then you'd start using two fingers and you tap on the Chinese meridian point, so the bony point above the eye, bony point below the eye, bony point above the lip, bony point on the chin, bony point on the inside of your chest bone, and the bony point underneath your armpit. And while you're tapping on those points, you're basically saying, all right, I'm having this anxiety reaction because I've been triggered by whatever. Um, that's okay, that's all, that's all right. You know, I'll be okay, everything will be, you know, you sort of say calming th- things to, uh, to yourself, and then you, you just before that, when you finish that, you shut your eyes, take a deep breath, and just bring yourself back to the present. Yes. Um, and then you would re-rate your level of anxiety out of 10. So, you know, it might have been an eight out of 10 to start. Um, after one round of tapping, it might be two out of 10. Okay. And if, it, if you're still getting some anxiety response, you just do it again until it goes back down to zero and then you, you move on sort of thing. So that's... The top that's of a, head one too? Yeah, the, to, the top of the head one can be used. Okay. Yeah, that, that is a, another spot as well. And and where, where that relates 
back to in terms of calming is like when you look at Buchanan's book, um, he, he talks about drugs for controlling PTSD and, and how, how much the drug companies are making out of it and all that sort of stuff. And then he talks about, um, you know, when, when you're a young child and, you know, you were crying or something and you, um, uh, you know, you might have teeth have been hurting or you might have had an upset stomach or, or whatever. So the mother or the father or uncle or auntie or grandma, you know, would calmly pick Don't up you? the child and pat you. So mm. that, so what, what's it actually doing with this, with this tapping is it's actually transitioning back into that early childhood where, you know, where that tapping actually calm, mm. calmed you down. Yeah, and wow. that, that's, that's sort of a bit of the yeah. research behind it. Or, or, the, or the reason why it tends to work. There's, there's becoming a lot more of the evidence-based stuff around this now. Correct. Which is, which yeah. is really good. Yeah. And we're seeing that more of our yeah. conferences, the yeah. workshops. And he talks a lot about it in, in his book about yeah. the evidence-based practice. And, he, and he, he also talks about a number of examples of where different sufferers of um, you know, PTSD from different backgrounds, um, you know, whether it be military or police or ambulance or fire yeah. or, or somebody that's just had a, been a civilian and had a car accident, for example. Yeah. And he talks about, you know, how, um, for example, the, the victim from the car accident that had a broken leg would uh, rate their pain always at eight out of 10. And, but um, the, the physical injury of the broken leg was rectified, mm. but they still had the pain at eight out of 10. And a, a lot of it was actually associated with the emotional pain from it, so they went through the EFT tapping, worked on that specific incident, yes. And all of a sudden, you know, after that, pain levels are, were down at about one or two out of ten. So that's that's an example of where it's worked in that environment. It's really interesting, isn't it? And we're seeing more and more people find it really effective in reducing the levels of anxiety. Or yeah, so it's like, it's something like you know, like if I'm out on the golf course and the helicopter fly over, and I haven't got you know, diazepam yeah. medication with me, um, you know, I can get a, you know, sometimes a quite high level anxiety response and, you know, so much so that, you know, quite severe shakes and almost feel like you're going to fall over. So it'll be a technique that I'll actually deploy yes. on the golf course to, to calm things down. And, you know, you might have a couple of crappy holes where the score's yeah. no good, but, you know, you can end up still finishing out the game and you, so you're still getting that walking and sometimes what i'll do is actually i'll stop actually playing but i'll just walk around with the guys and you know rake bunkers and filling divots and fix yeah. pitch marks but you know you're still out there getting that low level exercise yeah. and you're still getting the sunlight and you're still getting the socialization even though your game's not good you know some some because golf's a very intense game with for concentration so yeah. one of the side effects of PTSD is it's difficult to concentrate at times, you know, like I can, uh, out on the golf courses, if there's any external noise, I'm very, very highly attuned into that because of that, high, you know, your hypervigilance from your policing response. You know, I'll hear our helicopter coming from kilometres away and the other guys I'm playing with won't even know that it's here. I said, oh, did you hear that? And they you know, what? And I said, well, here it comes, <laughs> you know, because you're that, you're that attuned into yeah. sounds and even even things on the golf course, like they've got a uh, like a turbine blower that blow their leaves mm -hmm. and then that off the fairway. You know, if that's out on the golf course, very similar sound to the turbines on the police helicopter or the ambulance helicopters, and mm -hmm. um, you can get that physiological yeah. re anxiety response going in your body. So, yeah. 
So you do EFT tapping, you're doing yeah. golf obviously to be outside. Golf's outside, socialisation, socialisation. Um, you know, and it's also, you know, I'm, I'm now um, captain at the golf club. So, yeah. you know, there's there's some meetings and so it's keeping the mind active. Um, I, I actually build, I've gone, you know, I'm back into building model aircraft as a hobby. So it's a bit of like art therapy, if you'd like. Um, so, you know, I used to be able to knock a kid out within a day or two, but now um, I might do three a year. Mm. So I'll just do a little bit at a time. Um, I'll, I'll find once you finish one to start up another one. You know, I'll pull a kid out and go, "Yeah, it'd be nice to start on that, but no, nah, not today." You know, and you put it away, sort of thing. Um, if the sun's there, I'd rather be outside. Yeah. Yeah. So each each morning, you know, if the sun's sun's up. I get out on the back deck, get the um, exercise mat out. Um, I, um, you know, do all my golf stretches, um, do a lot of stretches to open up the front of the body, get the Pilates bands out, open up the chest, open up the front of the body. Um, you know, release the hip flexors, release the psoas muscle, which is yeah. part of your hip flexors that basically connects your lower yeah. back of your spine to the front front of your quadricep muscles, um, which are the only muscles in the body that actually connect those two areas. And that helps flush adrenaline, you know, that bloaty yeah. gut sensation. So yeah. I'll do the, I'll do those sort of opening of the body exercises of the front hip flexors um, each morning when I get up and normally each night before I go to bed. So I try and trying to get rid of that adrenaline out of the system that's built up from overnight when you get up in the morning yeah. and then try and get rid of as much of it before I actually go to sleep. Um, if I get into bed after doing that and I'm still, you know, I can feel, still feel I'm a, a bit up, you know, I might go into some progressive muscle muscle relaxation, yeah. mainly quadricep muscles, the biggest muscles, and glutes, um, abdominal muscles, um, and then breathing. I might turn on the Calm app on yep. the phone and do some meditation yeah. um, where you're doing a body scan and slowing your breathing down. Um, and if I've still got that really bloated gut sensation I can't get rid of, I've actually got like a muscle tens machine that um, I will, will put on my abdominal muscles and it, you can set it, it basically goes for a 10 minute cycle and uh, do it at a reasonably high intensity. So it's actually doing that progressive, it's doing that squeeze and release of the abdominal muscles automatically without having to think about it. And what you find is that after a while, the tension from the the, ab, the gut will go and it'll just all release. And invariably then um, I've gone off to sleep and next minute I'm awake in the morning and uh, I've still got it attached on me and I peel it off and go, oh, okay. Mm. Obviously, yeah. So that's, they're, they're the main things that uh, I, I tend to use. Um, I've got, you know, I've got uh, spiky balls and massage balls. So if I've got, yeah. you know, I've got one of them in the car. Um, sometimes if I'm going along the car and I sense the anxiety starting to build up from, there's not many roads in Melbourne that I didn't go to a crash on. So there's, a, um, for example, just the other day, I was driving along North Road um, where I'd been to a pedestrian fatality old lady that was in an evening and it was um, sort of peak hour and wet can, wet road conditions. So once upon a time, going back, you know, 12 months or so, going along that road at that similar time to those environmental conditions triggered an anxiety response that. The other day I was driving along there, you know, it's in the middle of the morning, sunny, 
uh, no problem. But a lady drives, speeds past me, and I look across and I look at her, and she looked similar to the lady that you know was basically dying in my arms mm-hmm. in, the, in the gutter that night. And then that triggered off reaction. Um, now the other, just last Thursday night, coming home from a meeting from the golf club, um, there was a pursuit fatality I went to in Francis Street, which is the street my street runs off. And that was back in 1992. And I've driven along this road two or three times, four times a day, you know. And all of a sudden, out of the blue the other night, you know, I look at the street sign, Irene Street, which is where where the intersection where it happened, and uh, bang, you know, it's on the next minute of, yeah, got the, you know, I'm basically pushing myself into the, seat back to stabilize the body and just you know the arms are both shaking and and it lasted for the length of francis street until it turned off you know so uh yeah you can it's not like you're losing control of the car but that's yeah. that's pretty full-on experience sometimes in the lead up to that i'll you might get it i might get a sharp pain coming on the lower right back so if i feel that coming on first i'll, I'll just grab the spiky ball and jam it in there and it's like yeah. a trigger point release and yeah. use things like that um but i do have Two full-on remedial massage sessions yep. every week. So uh, because the body's you know, working um, over time when you're in that uh, phase before you wake up in that hyper alert mode overnight, you know where everything's shaking. My wife will invariably have pillows between me and her, just in case I start flinging the arms around mm-hmm. in the sleep, to, so I don't whack whack her mm-hmm. accidentally, sort of thing. So uh, yeah, but they're, they're all sort of. Tactics. Did you also read that you do floating? Yeah, I do. I do floating. So uh, I started that um, about oh, it's probably about eighteen months ago now. So I had a, a call from um, uh, a gentleman by the name of Bob Shergold's message me, and um, he said, "Look, we'd like you to come and try this out at, at Beyond Rest in Campbell Road, Hawthorne." And uh, yeah, I thought, "All right, we'll give this a go." And uh, I've probably done something like about. 25 float sessions now so initially you know it's sensory deprivation stuff mm. there's a bit of uh music and uh you know, sort of purpley blue colored light when you get in there first off and um just the pod one or the open air one in the pods okay yeah um and then um eventually you know all the lights and the music go out and uh there's high concentration of magnesium salts so it's very buoyant the water um, you can't actually sink in it, you know, so, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's quite, you just on your back, put your arms back. I, I tend to put my um, hands behind my head and uh, yeah, you, it's just, there's a few occasions I've fallen off to sleep in there, but it has, the research shows it has an effect on actually calming the amygdala and then you get a bit of a benefit for two or three days post that with better sleep. Um, better concentration abilities yeah. and, and all that sort of stuff. Well, one of the, and it also relaxes all the muscles that have got tight too. Yeah, one of the uh, previous podcasts I did with, um, with one of our keynotes uh, earlier in the year was uh, Dr. Justin Feinstein, who was a yeah. clinical neuropsychologist. Yeah, so he was down in Melbourne just recently. Yeah, yeah, so he was yeah. probably the same trip. So yeah. he was, uh, yeah, it's amazing. Some of the research and the evidence coming yeah. out from that with PTSD and severe anxiety. Yeah. Um, so I, I took... Um, uh, one of one of other colleagues from the fighting PTSD Vic Pol group. Um, you know, 
I said, uh, you know, we organised. I said, well, do you want to come for a float? You know, she said, yeah. So she she had her first float last Friday. And, um, you know, like coming out, she had like a really emotional release out of there. But she, she said, she said, you know, in her words, it like it recalibrated her brain or, or something. And that was was her feedback. And, uh, you know, she said, I'm coming back to do more. So, yeah, you know, and, and that's... Um, had a few other colleagues similar response. Some of them haven't had as good a response, but generally it's been a pretty good response to it. And mm. um, you know, having that uh, really glowy feeling of well-being after after doing a flight session. So, yeah. yeah, I think well, obviously I don't have PTSD or anything, but I've been doing it as well. But it's yeah. it's amazing just uh, the calming effect it can have, especially yeah. with the. The busyness in today and the distractions going on and all the yeah just time to completely zone out oh, where you got great. no distractions and yeah. all that sort of stuff and and you can do some awesome stretching in there too like because um, I got the you know I've got psoriasis across my stomach as well which basically came out of the last uh, trial I gave evidence in um, I actually will turn over onto my stomach and do like a pose like you're a parachutist coming yeah. free falling. Wow. And we'll do that and uh, you know, mainly to get a bit of the magnesium salts on the yeah. on the psoriasis on the stomach, but it also gives you another different aspect of stretching and, and do full leg over stretches to you know, loosen up the lower back and the and the posterior muscles and the glutes and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's really good. And you know, you can give you if you've got a tight neck or shoulders you can actually while you're floating you can actually do that yourself, you know take the tension out of that area of your body. Do, do you think, is there, have they said that the 20% of the psoriasis, is there an opportunity or is there a possibility that that will subside? Um, I, I was hoping, but it uh, it's there's actually probably a little bit more coming out okay. over, over time. Um, you know, obviously, you're still, each time when you're waking up, of the night time with that response you, you know that's adrenaline and cortisol is being released automatically so um you know there's still a lot lot there so i also um you know use a corticosteroid ointment um or gel favor bit on it when it gets really bad to put on it and i don't like putting it on too much the doctors say put it should put it on every day for x number of days but i found that it actually like makes the layer of skin a bit too thin and you can really susceptible to get a, just the slightest little nick on it that it'll um, bleed and uh, have, you know, you'll have contr trouble controlling the bleed. So when it gets really, really irritating, I'll, I'll put that stuff on, but generally I'll try and just treat it with the, with salt water, either by floating or down the beach at the Life Saving Club. Um, and obviously, you know, putting moisturiser on those areas to take away the, the scaliness or the itchiness of the dryer or dead skin yeah. what what are you up to now so obviously 2016 you um, <coughs> ill health retired, health retired yeah. from the, yeah from the after force, 30 years yeah which um so three years i guess since since you've yeah so service so what, what have you been what have you been doing so you know yeah. life saving so yeah some uh, patrol director club cabinet at port melbourne life saving club so that over the off season, that involves you know just basically going along to committee meetings, you know, yep. once a month sort of thing. Um, then obviously now we're we're building up to the season, which starts uh, yeah. middle of next month. Um, so that then that'll be involved, you know, actually be being physical presence there more yep. during patrols and 
on our nippers day where you've got um, you know we've got that in excess of 200 nippers on our books so it's a it's full on operation when they're down there, but it's you know it's good. They're all young kids, and they're all yeah, over more kids time. doing nippers. Yeah. Isn't the greatest thing? Yeah, like it's yeah, seeing them down there, water safety. Yeah, getting them outside and, ball and all that sort of stuff. And <laughs> uh, yeah, and we do we do um, primary school programs in February, and so it's it's all good fun stuff. And it's you know you're getting you're getting the, some physical exercise whilst you're out there. Plus you're also getting the salt water and the psoriasis, and you're getting the the sunlight, which is natural serotonin. Um, which is part of the ingredients of the antidepressant SSRI medication. So, mm. yeah. And then yeah, I'm also golf. at the golf club, yeah. yeah golf so club. I've been a member at Huntingdale Golf Club for 39 years. So it was, you know, it, I would uh, try and play, get two games of golf in a week during during my career. Didn't happen all the time, but sometimes sometimes you get there on a Saturday morning, just put the tee in the first tee and then beep, 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 you know, you'd be off. So, you know, you go mm. Yeah, and other times you get three quarters away around, you get called out, sort of thing. But that's the way it is. But that, you know, obviously, golf um, is a good social connection, but it's a good walk. You know, you you're mm. invariably you're hitting uh, your ten thousand steps on about the eleventh wow. green. Um, when you map um, calorie loss. For 18, 18 holes of golf, you're burning off about 2,000 calories. Oh. Um, if you go for a half hour run, that's about 500 calories. If you go for an hour of bike ride, it's about 1,000 calories. So mm. okay. um, golf is actually, from an exercise point of view, you're actually mm. using every muscle in the body. Um, you, know, you need good core stability. So the core stability, if you work on that, it's also increasing or strengthening the hip flexors and it's releasing the psoas muscles if you're doing all those exercises properly, which is important for um, one of the things of managing the PTSD also. Yeah. And, it, you know, and there's, it just, it gets you out. Yeah. There's a reason to get out, to drive there. Even though I've got to drive on the roads to get out there, you know, one of my uh, strategies, you know, before I leave home, if I feel that the system's up, you know, I, I will actually take um, a five milligram tablet of diazepam just before I leave home, which then comes calms the anxiety response because it doesn't matter which way I'll go to the golf course. There was a job on every road. Yeah. So, and you just don't know when it's going to play yeah. up, you know, even though you, you know where the locations are, you don't, sometimes it'll be right. Sometimes it's not all right. So you just, as a management strategy, you'll do that. Uh, when I get to the golf course, you know, I won't have a cup of coffee because coffee's a worse thing because you're generally yeah. up anyway. So, yeah, you know, I might just have some uh, quiet lunch and, and have one glass of wine before yep. I go out. You know, um, the doctors from the one of the doctors from the Austin said, you know, alcohol is okay in low doses, but overdoses is not okay. You know, yep. like, so one one can just take the edge off yep. the anxiety response, but it's very easy to slip from that anxiety response into the post job phase and the depressive response. And if you've had too many drinks. Yeah. That can make that de <clears throat> depressive response worse. And you know, I've had colleagues that have, you know, haven't been following their management strategies and had gone on a bender. And and then you know, at one twenty a.m. in the morning, I've had text messages saying, you know, basically, I'm out of here, mate. You know, and of course, you're seeing that and go, fuck. You know, like it's yeah. sort of swinging into play some action plans, even though you're retired, yeah. you're getting con back in contact with uh, you know, communications and getting 
members to go there around there and do welfare checks to check up on your buddies basically yeah because yeah. the last thing you want to hear is one of them yeah. taking their life and which happens too much unfortunately yeah. unfortunately you're right it does and and i don't like obviously the statistics are, are still not trending in the way we want them to go no, it's um, well from what i you know like you in in victoria over the last couple of months um you know through the social media channels that I'm involved with with Thin Blue Line, the Code Nine Foundation, Vic Pole Fight, or Fighting PTSD, Vic Pole. You know, we, um, I think it was about, well, probably about three or four weeks ago now, there was two current serving Victoria police members and one veteran that was living over in WA that took their, took their lives, um, unable to manage, you know, the symptoms of the PTSD. Um, a couple of weeks prior to that, there was two federal police officers I was aware of, um, and uh, uh, an ambulance. I think it was an ambulance officer that week as well. And in the same week that the current serving Victoria Police, there was a, um, a Metropolitan Fire Brigade officer that took took their lives. So, yeah, and that's that's what we don't want. But you know, the, the stats basically are showing that for every military or first responder that you lose on duty it's almost a ratio of about around seven to eight to one that you lose off duty yeah. so of, of from basic suicide from not being able to manage wow. the ptsd I, i've got a, a guy on one of my teams at the life-saving club who was special forces uh, in the army and uh, they had 20 uh, that they, you know, he was over there with. They lost two over there, and um, they've lost another eight since coming back. Um, one of them was oh, probably earlier on this, uh, might have been late last year. I, I remember specifically um, heading towards the life saving club from the golf club and just pushing the button on the steering wheel and say, you know, dial Scott. Um, you know, and uh, he answered and he was all emotional. I said, what's wrong, mate? And he said, oh, we just lost another one of the boys overnight. And he said, oh, I had a phone call from him that, or message <coughs> that he'd missed it um, in the early hours of the morning when he was asleep. And um, uh, unfortunately, his colleague had taken his life. So mm. he, he felt a sense of guilt mm. associated with that because, uh, but I said, mate, you're asleep, you're not going to hear every message that comes through. You know, well, yeah. It's just one of those things you, can, you, know, you, don't, you can't blame yourself for it. So, yeah. The, so, so what's driving you now? What, I mean, because you, you're going around, you're talking at the men's sheds, you're, doing, yeah. you're still presenting as a guest speaker at the Austin yep. Hospital. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and you're at RMIT, you're involved there. Yep. So what, what's, and, and obviously you're coming to speak at the conference top. Yeah, I think I think well it's obviously um, you know that that goal that was with the major collision investigation unit in reducing road trauma you know that that was that's probably you know as I said to you earlier that trying to come up with ideas to reduce deaths in that area um, I was memory was exhausted if you thought and so was the body from going yeah. to stuff so yeah the, the life saving club is, is a goal because you know um obviously we've set a strategic plan here and and uh you know you want your ideas to have zero aquatic 
deaths. Mm. Um, and obviously to educate people about water safety and all that. So life-saving is a lot more proactive than reactive, um, whereas purely when I was in the major collision, it was all reactive. Yeah. Um, in the times, at downtime, um, in that unit, if I was up with eight on paperwork and all that from all the fatalities, I'd actually go out there and be, do proactive stuff, you know. I'd actually take a laser out, I'd do random breath tests. You know, some of the other people wouldn't, but, you know, you just felt that you had to sort of do everything you could to try and prevent it. Um, but in the end of the day, you realise it's, it's still going to happen, you know. Um, but at the Lifesaving Club, we've got a lot more, you know, you've got a lot more control, we've got a lot... We've got quite big patrol teams when it's busy days and uh, you can do a lot of things to prevent things from occurring. You can see things early and actually take action early too. So it's all preventative mostly. You know? We did 1,315 preventative actions last year. I suppose the other goal now with um, doing getting involved with veteran support and all that is, you know, I've, I've sort of to a greater extent, but it, although there's still you know, reactions occurring from the chronic PTSD, but I manage it and manage it quite quite well. Um, but I'm, you know, you're able to provide input, valuable input to other veterans or colleagues about your experience and, you know, the whole process that they might be starting to experience along the line. And, uh, you know, you can, you know, offer, offer recommendations and, and advice, yes. and they're more likely to take advice from somebody that's been there and done that than um, maybe going to a superior. You know, they, they may, may, may want to sort of have it looked at covertly rather than overtly, um, and they will come to former colleagues or, or people that have been there and gone through it. and listen to their advice and they're able to take action um, without necessarily going through superiors because sometimes those superiors have got no idea mm. about how to manage it and what to do about it and can make things, some of them can make things worse. Yeah. Do you feel like it's heading in the right direction with the way things are going from a, a mitigation, like to prevention point of view as well, like from coming into the academy level? Do you feel like the conversations are now? Yeah, Vic, Vic Pohl's moved on, you know, like um, a former colleague of mine who was at the crash unit, Greg Dean, you know, he's, he uh, last year did a Churchill Fellowship, travelled to uh, around the US and in the UK, um, finding out about what other um, police forces, etc., are doing. Um, and he's brought the good things from that back to Vic Pohl. You know, we've got a, an app now with the poll that's uh, called equipped which is a uh, uh, one that, that members can download and um, um, it's it's uh, similar to a thing like pdsd coach that's available for the uh, veterans that you can download and i i used pdsd coach uh, quite a bit as well um, especially earlier on in the phase just to sort of do a self-checking on where your levels were at um, and you know whether you were still high or very high um, so there's a series of questions that you would go through and you could assess exactly where you were and you could track your recovery and or where you were and if you needed, if things were trending back up again, you know, it'd be time to 
tap back into your uh, you know your mental health providers, your GP or your yeah. psychologist or your psychiatrist. So, yeah. You're, uh, I mean, you're out there sharing your story and your journey, which is really, really good because, mm-hmm. like you said, people um, that are still serving in the force or for veterans, it's it's a great way to be able to resonate, have that, you know, with that rapport with someone that's been through it, mm-hmm. knows what they're, they're going through, the symptoms and what you're doing to help manage, as you put it, yeah. um, you know, what you're up to. So I think it's really, really uh, amazing what you're doing. Yeah, well, thanks, thanks there, Sam. And uh, you know, it's certainly been a a, uh, a long and difficult journey, and uh, yeah. you know, it's a journey that's continuing. But uh, yeah, things you know, you, you can go on and achieve other things in life. Um, and the last thing we want to see is uh, you know current or veterans taking their lives to suicide because yeah. you know they're not seeking the appropriate treatment. To manage it, um, and then you know that's I don't want to hear that yeah. sort of stuff because it, you know I went to the funeral of a young guy that one of the serving members you know down at uh, it was from Winchelsea Police Station his funeral was at uh, Torquay Life Saving Club there a few weeks back and um, you know you just saw the devastation on his family members and come to reality of what had happened and you know you see the pain and suffering that 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 can occur when people get take that option and it, uh, every day above the grass is a good day you know every day yeah. that you wake up is a good day and we're not around on this place for all that long and you got to i see that you've got to make the most of every opportunity and uh that's what i try and do yeah well man it's inspirational you know f- for you being out there to share your story and and the service that you've provided uh, the 30 years in the, yeah. in the in the uniform is really something that obviously we thank you for. Yeah. I know that you've been awarded the Australian Police Medal, National Service Medal, National Police Service Medal, Victoria Police Medal and Victoria Police Staff for your yeah. service, yeah. Um, which is great to be able to recognise the service you provided to Victoria. Yeah. But I think another important thing probably to touch on is the fact that, yes, you know, 2,000 road fatalities that you've attended, but... I also think that there's probably, an, uh, I don't know how many count of, of the ones that you've saved. I mean, the yeah. even just the reduction in speed limits and, and other things. Oh, like, yeah. Uh, well, you know, when I talked a little, little bit about that earlier in terms of, you know, the, the advertising campaign with the TAC, um, you know, there's three adverts I was in, um, even just the Highway Patrol show, that's an educational thing. Um, um, yeah, you know, the, the introduction of uh, I found out about stability control when I went to Detroit in '97, and I brought a video of that back here to get it into all the Australian car fleet. You know, yeah. Pushed it, pushed it, pushed it through coroner's inquest because a third of the fatalities I was going to was people were losing control and going sideways off road into trees or poles or into the oncoming traffic or off road and rolling over. So you know, we now got just about every brand new car has got either dynamic stability control or electronic stability yeah. control or whatever vehicle dynamics control it's all the same thing and and that's part and parcel of why i ended up with the australia day honor was for you know the reduction in road trauma when i when i started in the unit you know it was uh yeah it said 989 770 fatalities uh, when i finished it was 260. yeah um each each death now costs the community an, an economic cost of about $3 million per fatality at the moment. Um, 
So it's a huge drain on the economy, but that's relatively minor in terms of the ripple effect of road trauma. You know, yeah. you got you know, obviously from my my personal experience, you know, the ripple effect in terms of yeah. ending up with PTSD and then chronic PTSD. You know, that that can happen with your fire brigade, the ambulance personnel that's attending, uh, witnesses that come across it, um, even people that might sit in on a jury case that are listening to all this about yeah. it. You know. So families, relatives of the victims, it's it's a massive, I think there's yeah. something like for every one death, there's about a hundred other people that get affected by that yeah. death in terms of what goes on in the road. So, I, you know, I, got, I hold my head pretty high in terms of, you know, what, what I achieved in the job. And what I, what I also sort of probably portray is that, okay, I went to 2,000 fatalities, and if we compare that to Vietnam, there were 500, about 500 Australian servicemen were killed in Vietnam. So over my 30 years of policing experience, I've been exposed to four times that amount of death firsthand. And what it shows that if you do seek um, the right treatment and you learn how to manage this condition, you can function in life and achieve um, bigger and better things, you know. It's not every day that somebody becomes a, a captain or, you know, I've just done two years as president of the exclusive Melbourne Sandbell Golf Club, you know. Yeah. You don't do that without being a high achiever. Yeah. Um, and saying that the Life Saving Club, we've got 850 members there. So, you know, they're, they're, they're things I'm proud of, but they're also things that help me manage my con condition and move on. So. Well, we thank you for your service with the police uh, and the lives that you've saved, but also um, in what you're doing now, not only mm. with the life-saving stuff, but also sharing your journey with other people and helping reduce yeah. the stigma around PTSD yeah. um, and also but you know, helping people be able to manage it. So uh, thank you for doing that and thanks for coming on the show and thanks for talking. No, thanks, Sam. Much appreciated. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.